Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, my guest is Julie Roginski, a veteran Democratic communications operative with deep roots in New Jersey, among other places. Julie has a fascinating story of how she and her family came to the U.S. from the Soviet Union. She's perhaps most well-known for her stint as a Fox News contributor and as part of the sexual harassment lawsuit against Fox News and Roger Ailes. And she's a co-founder of Lift Our Voice, an organization working to stamp out harassment and toxic behavior in the workplace. I think it's safe to say that no one else in politics has a story quite like Julie. Julie Roginski, I often start these conversations asking my guests to tell me a little about their upbringing, and then I quickly move on to their professional path. But the first, what, 10, 15 years of your life, I dare say, are more unique, more consequential than are those of most of us who work in politics. So please go into whatever depth you need to adequately tell the story of the Roginski family and, and how you grew up. Sure. Um, well, thank you, first of all, so much for having me. I was born in Moscow in the Soviet Union. So my parents um, and I were actually Soviet refugees. And we left in 1980 in the midst of what was then shaping up to be sort of Cold War II. Uh, we were very lucky to get out. It was obviously during the days of the Iron Curtain, which unfortunately seemed to be rearing their heads again in recent months. But we left, couldn't come straight here. So we moved to Austria first and then to Italy for a short period of time and then came here um, when I was seven years old um, in 1980 to the Bronx. And I grew up in the Bronx uh, under pretty difficult circumstances. We had about 90 bucks when we came to the States between the three of us until I was about 12 or 13. And then when the going was getting good living in New York City, my parents said, oh, wait a second, we got to get this girl out of here. And we moved to central New Jersey, right outside Princeton, New Jersey, which is where I finished growing up and went to high school and think of myself as a Jersey girl, although I haven't lived there in, in many, many years and still living in New York these days, but still always think of myself as a Jersey girl. And what can you say about why it was necessary, why your family wanted to, chose to flee, had to flee sure. the Soviet Union in the late 70s, early 80s? We were Jewish, which doesn't mean much in the sense that we weren't religious. But back then, uh, the best comparison you can make was there was a Jim Crow type situation for Jews in the Soviet Union back then. They were legally equal, but in reality, there was a completely dual system. And so many members of my family perished as a result of that. My grandfather served about 10 years in the Gulag because he wouldn't work on Saturdays just because he was a religious Jew. My great-grandfather was shot on Stalin's orders. My grandparents were refuseniks, which were people who were not allowed to leave with us, which was very difficult because they were in their 70s by then. And, and this was just a staple of the Soviet system to separate families, to, to punish them for wanting to leave. So I think my parents and my grandparents looked at what life would be like for me, who was the only child growing up in this system with that kind of history of generations of just oppression. They decided that this just couldn't be and that they were going to do everything they could to, to give me a better opportunity in life. And very miraculously were some of the very few families that were able to get out. So many people couldn't, including my own grandparents. Purely, I think, because my parents were, especially my father, was incredibly anti-Soviet, had been conscripted into the Soviet army in the 60s and just hated the system that he had to serve his whole life. 
was a huge fan of the United States, obviously understood that it was such a beacon for democracy and hope for, for so many people, including us, just really wanted to make sure that his daughter was not going to grow up under the same system that he grew up, his parents grew up. I come to our system of government and our system of democracy with probably just slightly more gratitude <laughs> than, than your average person, because I understand exactly what the alternative is. And I understand exactly what it's given me and so many other people over the course of so many centuries. Most of us in the United States learn about the Soviet Union in school and the Cold War, and there's Lenin and Stalin and Khrushchev threatening to bury us, nuclear weapons pointed at each other. But in popular culture, at least in the U.S., you get to the 70s and 80s, and the might and ferocity of Stalin gives way to these figures who are almost parodies, and you hear about Soviet bureaucracy and incompetence and Potemkin villages, and instead of Joseph Stalin, you think of Yakov Smirnov. I guess my question is, even if the Soviet Union's peak of the threat that it posed to the West had passed by the time you come along in the 70s and 80s, is it safe to say that they were still up to some pretty bad stuff even in that era? Well, sure. I mean, look, first of all, the sclerosis that the Soviet economy was facing in the 70s by the time I came around, certainly the nuclear threat that it no longer posed potentially in the way that it did during the Cuban Missile Crisis 10 years before I was born. All of that is true, but in their treatment of their ethnic minorities and in their treatment of their religious minorities, and really in their treatment of their own people, yes, people were no longer being shot, but it doesn't mean that they weren't being imprisoned for their political views. It didn't mean that they were able to speak freely about the system. That didn't really start to happen until Gorbachev came along in 1985 and you, and you began to have glasnost, which was sort of this thawing of speech. But certainly in the 70s, when I was growing up, I was born in 1973. From a very young age, we were incredibly indoctrinated. I remember coming home. Actually, I don't remember this, but this tale that my grandparents told when they were still alive. I would come home and I would say to my grandmother, what do you think is more important, food or Lenin? Vladimir Lenin, not John Lennon. And she would say, she was, of course, a product of the Stalin years. So she was deathly afraid of saying anything. She would kind of say, well, you know, I think food is is, is kind of more important just because it sustains us and we have to eat every day. And I would just look at her and I was probably three or four at the time. I say, oh, no, grandma, you're so wrong about that. It's not food. It's Lenin because he's the he's the man that created all of this for us. When you have that kind of indoctrination from an incredibly young age and not certainly in my family, but in the schools and the kindergartens and the nursery schools, which is where I was going, you start to understand that maybe the life threat is not as existential as it was in the 30s and 40s and even early 50s under Stalin, but it certainly intellectually was. You certainly understood that there was no opportunity for you to think for yourself, to act for yourself, to speak out about things that you thought were wrong. And it really did kind of shape me um, and shaped a lot of what I ended up doing many, many decades later, where you start to realize that if you don't speak up, you end up in a situation where you have these kinds of systemic abuses where people are just too cowed and too afraid to speak up. And, and luckily, we don't live in a country like that. We live in a country where you can speak up. It might affect you professionally, it might affect you personally, but it's not going to affect you and your family to the point where you're going to be imprisoned or shot or executed or, or sent to the gulag, which is something I think a lot of people probably don't appreciate as much as they should about living here, um, as opposed to what the alternative is. And, and what the alternative, unfortunately, is today in Russia. It's trending very much in the same totalitarian direction that I grew up under in my very first formative years. You ping pong around a little bit as a child, but wind up in New York. What are some of your first memories? What is the Bronx like through the eyes of a (laughs) a six-year-old Soviet refugee? Well, you know, my first memory was that we landed at JFK. My father desperately tried to 
catch a glimpse of the Statue of Liberty from the plane window, which I don't think he did. But for him, that was such a symbol of just having gotten out, being free. And then we landed at the airport and didn't think anybody was going to greet us, didn't know that we knew anybody. But somehow we had these distant cousins who I don't really think I even recognized existed at the time, who somehow got wind that we were coming and came to greet us at the airport. And one of them brought a box of crayons. Remember those like multi- huge packs of Crayola. There were like 40 or 50 to a box. And I'd never seen crayons before. And I thought it was the most unbelievable thing I'd ever seen. I I just couldn't stop looking at it and thinking about it and, and just was mesmerized by this box of Crayola. And I was just seven at the time. Seeing something like a color TV that I'd never seen before, seeing a very primitive 1980s remote control for TV, which I thought was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. We moved to a hotel for the first couple of weeks that we lived here before we moved to the Bronx called the Hotel Greystone, which if you're in New York on the Upper West Side, you know it. It's still now it's condos and it's kind of high end condos in the area right now is pretty high end. But back then was kind of known as Heroin Alley dangerous neighborhood at the time. I'd never seen any kind of diversity. I mean, I'd never seen a person of color really in my life until we got here. Of course, all sorts of horrible things happened in the Soviet Union, but nobody ever was able to talk about it. So you never thought about crime happening or or, or murder happening or robbery happening. Here you were living in New York in 1980 when the Bronx was burning in this very diverse neighborhood and learning from my parents who inherently understood that they were the very people in the Soviet Union who now were being discriminated against here, although, you know, obviously they weren't African-American, but looking at that kind of discrimination and that double standard in the 1980s, especially in New York, towards people of color, they inherently understood and taught me, you have to always treat people with incredible respect, no matter what their situation in life, because that used to be us, right? We were the people who were discriminated against. That was something that I think was an incredible life lesson for me as well, growing up in this very diverse community in the Bronx. I went to school in Manhattan. So that was an interesting experience commuting on the six train an hour each way back when Bernie Getz was running rampant and you had all this vigilante justice on the subway and there's a lot of danger and the city was in a bad place in the early 1980s. Look, I loved it. I became a New Yorker. I always wanted to get back here. I eventually did as an adult. And that's what I kind of said to you that when in 1986, my parents packed up and moved to New Jersey to the suburbs. I was like, wait a second. Just when things are getting interested here, just when the going's getting good, we're moving somewhere that's a lot more vanilla and a lot more suburban. Didn't quite know, know what to do with that. And I think a lot of that came from this understanding of not growing up with it from birth, but really coming into it as a child and really being able to absorb it almost as a stranger and was fascinated by it. And what are some of your earlier political memories in the U.S. growing up? Was there a a candidate or a campaign that captured your attention at a young age? That's a great question. Soviet Jews were very much pro-Reagan at the time because Reagan talked a a very strong game, obviously, against, against the Soviets. My parents were probably the only ones I can think of who weren't. Always were Democrats, always were very liberal. And in 1984... So I must have been 11 during the Mondale-Reagan debate. (laughs) Everybody else in my grade, literally, and I I didn't go to school with Soviet kids, but nevertheless, Reagan was so popular. Remember, he won 49 out of 50 states. Everybody decided they were going to play Reagan, and I was going to be the only person who played Mondale. I prepped and I prepped, and the only thing I could come up with was, what about the deficit? What about the deficit? What about the deficit? And nobody knew what that word meant, and neither did I. But my teachers were kind of nodding very, very um, sagely because they knew what it meant. I was kind of groomed, I think, to be a a Democrat and and so proud that I was because everything that I believe and everything I just talked about for the last five or six minutes really made me appreciate what the Democratic Party stands for. 
was committed to that from a young age, very politically aware. I had a family where politics was constantly discussed and maybe because it wasn't allowed to be discussed their entire lives in the Soviet Union. My father especially was very politically verbal, constantly had CNN on once CNN became a thing. Also with respect to obviously international relations because the Cold War was still raging. And I grew up actually wanting to join the foreign service. I wanted to be, if you remember who Jean Kirkpatrick was, she was ambassador to the United Nations in the Reagan administration. I wanted to grow up to be her. I really wanted to grow up to be Susan Rice, Jean Kirkpatrick, or Condoleezza Rice, Madeleine Albright. I desperately wanted to be the first female Secretary of State. Didn't work out that way, but I did go to college actually to study foreign relations, international relations. And then that was my plan A was to go into the foreign service. How did the switch flip for you that you knew you actually wanted to work in politics and campaign politics? And how did you get a foot in the door? Very circuitously. I, as I said, wanted to go into um, international relations, but the year that I graduated, the Cold War was basically over and there was really nothing to be done. I I was going to take the foreign service exam. It was unclear whether they were going to offer it that year. I had a graduate degree and I was very proud of it. I'd never worked anywhere in my life, but I was kind of went down to the hill and said, okay, I'm going to work for an international relations, somebody who works for the international relations committee and the house side or the foreign uh, relations committee on the Senate side, not understanding that that was the year that Democrats lost control of the house for the first time in 40 years. And there were many, many, many much more qualified people than I was who were out of work. So I was basically walking the halls of Congress, trying to hand out my resume and being laughed out the door. That was kind of dispiriting. I then said, okay, well, maybe I'll go work on the campaign of somebody who I can elect, and then I'll go with them and work on the Hill. And hopefully one of these people will end up being on these committees because I was still very committed to doing international relations at the time. I had interned at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund when I was in college in Boston. My boss at the time was friends with Mary Beth Cahill, has a storied career in democratic politics, running John Kerry's presidential campaign. She was, she's just a, she's kind of a legend in president in democratic politics but at the time was running Emily's List. And Emily's List was probably three or four years old at the time. She called Mary Beth Cahill and said, look, I have this former intern and she doesn't really know anything about anything. Can you hook her up? And so I went down to Emily's List. They trained me to be a researcher and sent me to Maine to work on a congressional campaign in Maine for the first openly gay woman running for Congress, which at the time was incredibly scandalous because this is 1996 and this was just not done, that people were out of the closet. This was just an incredibly tenuous time. So she sent me to Maine. I moved to this semi-built house in Portland, Maine. I think I got paid about a thousand bucks a month. I commuted for about 40 minutes every day and I loved it. I loved campaigns. I loved the camaraderie of it, but we lost that primary and I was out of a job again. And then again, through somebody I met in Maine, I had heard of a congressman in New Jersey named Frank Pallone, Congressman Pallone, who at the time was a probably a decade long congressman. Now he's the chair of the House Commerce Committee, but he was looking for somebody to work in his campaign. And that's really where I got my start. I went to work for Congressman Pallone and his campaigns, and he really taught me everything. I mean, I cannot say enough incredible things about what he did for my career and what he did to teach me. He put me in positions of influence where I had no business being. By the time that campaign was over, I said to him, look, my whole goal was to go to Washington. I want to go work on the Hill for you. And he said, no, you don't. You want to stay here and, and run my political operation. And I said, okay, I guess I have no choice. I'll stay here and run your political operation. And I loved it. And I started doing campaigns, as I'm sure every campaign person knows. I did end up working on the Hill. I ended up working for Senator Corzine. 
um, as his communications director and realized belatedly that The Hill was just not a place that I loved. Um, I loved the fast-paced, transient nature of campaigns, and, and that's what I really decided to do with the rest of my life and, and loved doing it for 20 years or so. And I do want to talk a little bit about Jersey, but what is the story of a young Julie Reginsky working for the Labor Party in uh, Great Britain? Oh, yes. I went to London um, when I was at college, got a job working for the Labor Party, and it was really great because it was before Tony Blair. It was when they were like way, way, way to the left. They were always trying to get me to go to socialist conferences with them in like Brussels. And I would always say, no, it's not really my cup of tea. But um, I learned a lot. It was actually the first time I worked. I worked for the woman who was in charge of their women's outreach. And that was so unique to me because that was something that didn't really exist on American um, in American political parties at the time. I had to write all these policy papers about outreach to women and women's issues and, and really just introduced me to women's issues in ways that I didn't appreciate at the time, didn't really frankly care about at the time. My whole goal was man, woman doesn't really matter. Just keep your head down, do your job, you'll be fine. And, and that was kind of the advice I gave to young women um, when I got into positions of, of influence for a long time, which was absolutely the wrong advice, by the way, but I but I did believe it at the time and, and gave it. And, and that was not the right decision and the right advice to give. But nevertheless, London was great. It was a great time to be there. I was there in 1993, just as Margaret Thatcher had been deposed and John Major, her successor, was the leader of the Tory party and, and they were still in charge. It was great to work for the Labour Party because unlike working at the DNC or working at any Democratic, whether it's the DNC or the DCCC or, or any these other democratic entities, the Labour Party was a really lean, small operation at the time. And you saw ministers of parliament, they only had one or two staff members. I mean, incredibly different from what we have here in the States with respect to members of Congress or, or senators. It was great. It was a great lesson in comparative politics. And London, for anybody who hasn't spent any time there, is a wonderful city to live. And we've already talked about your roots in New Jersey, your your political connections to New Jersey. And you worked for, you mentioned Frank Pallone, longtime veteran congressman, but you worked for almost every Democrat who's come along in New Jersey over the past generation, Corzine and Murphy and Booker and Lautenberg. Yep. The list goes on. People everywhere think politics in their state is different, but New Jersey probably is one of the more unique places. So give me your 101 and to what degree the process, the personalities do indeed make New Jersey politics meaningfully different than the other 49 states. Well, New Jersey has two things going for it that make it incredibly unique. One is there really is no New Jersey media market. You're in the middle of the New York media market, which is the most expensive media market in the country. And the Philadelphia media market, which is really up there as well. So it's really hard to communicate unless you are the governor or the, one of the two senators from New Jersey. Chances are people don't really know who you are. They don't know their Congress people as well as other places. They don't certainly don't know their state legislators because it is so expensive and, and almost impossible to communicate, especially in recent years as the media has been really hallowed out. So that makes it very hard to communicate, which means that you can get a lot, away with a lot of stuff in New Jersey that you probably couldn't if you're working in Iowa or or Maine, for that matter, or virtually anywhere else. The other thing New Jersey has, and I think a lot of people don't appreciate this, is they have something called the party line, the county line, which means that county chairs, either unilaterally or through their elected county committee, which really are elected, but, but for the most part are controlled by these county chairs, are able to give preferential ballot positioning to their preferred candidate. In primaries, right? We're talking about primaries. In primaries. So it is almost impossible. It's been done, but very, very hard to win a, a primary on either side of the aisle, Democrat or Republican, unless you have 
curried favor with these county chairs who are, again, elected by their county committee, but really very oftentimes function as party bosses. It doesn't matter who you are. And I'll, you mentioned Governor Murphy. I'll use him as an example because I did his gubernatorial primary. There are 21 counties in New Jersey. Governor Murphy had 21 of those county lines. It would have been virtually impossible for his opponents to beat him because he had the support of every single county line, county chair. And so that by the time voters tend to vote, the decision has in some ways already been made for them. That's a very unique situation so that it's a lot harder to break out if you are not part of the infrastructure, if you have not become part of the machine, for lack of a better description. And a lot of time you spent as a consultant in New Jersey, not just communicating with voters, but frankly, communicating with the 21 or, or 30 people, most of whom are men who make the decisions about who the nominee is going to be on either side of the aisle. By the way, this is not unique to the Democratic Party. This is exactly what the Republicans go through as well. Probably makes New Jersey slightly less Democratic with a, with a small d than other states, but also incredibly unique. It also creates a much tougher political environment, especially in primaries, much more um, internecine in, in, in primaries than you would in other states, I would think. And there are some states, I think of Louisiana, for example, that have a very idiosyncratic, colorful political history. And there's still some of that going on in Louisiana. But over the last generation or so, some of what has made it unique has been lost as instead of all politics being local, we increasingly see that all politics is national now. And so you've been deeply involved in New Jersey politics for 20 plus years. Has New Jersey politics gotten less New Jersey in that time? Are there fewer <laughs> colorful characters? Have the New Jersey differences been sanded down to some degree in that time? Or is it still as unusual a place politically as the state you first encountered in the trenches in the 90s? I think actually it's it, it hasn't changed much. And again, I think it's because of this, this very interesting way that parties pick their primary candidates. And especially, I think, as New Jersey's gotten much more democratic over the last since I began, I mean, I got to New Jersey in 1996. Christine Todd Whitman is a Republican. She was the governor for two terms. Then you had um, a couple of Democratic short-lived governors, and then Governor Christie became the governor for two terms. But despite the fact that you had those two very prominent Republican governors, it's still a very, very Democratic state. I mean, incredibly Democratic. So the odds of a Democrat losing a Senate race is next to nothing. Um, I believe the New Jersey congressional delegation now has two Democrats, sorry, two Republicans. The rest are all Democrats out of 12, so 10 to 2. The legislature is overwhelmingly controlled by Democrats. The only reason Republicans win gubernatorial elections in New Jersey is when Democrats really overreach with respect to taxes and spending, because New Jersey is still a very, very tax sensitive and a fiscally sensitive state because the tax structure in New Jersey is so out of control compared to other states. And Democrats now have a 1 million vote registration advantage in New Jersey, much more so than they've ever had uh, over Republicans. When you have that kind of registration advantage, when you have that kind of inherent advantage, primaries become that much more important, which means that the people who decide who is going to win that primary become that much more important. That's all a very long way of saying the New Jersey uniqueness <laughs> that creates the kind of candidates that it, that it creates is fostered very much by this party system that is incredibly strong. And I would say is again, much more so than it is in other states. Conversely, the argument to keep the system as it is, is that people should have a choice of how to affiliate. County parties want to affiliate with a particular candidate. That should be their choice. There are two sides to the story. It does result in this very unique, tough, no-holds-barred New Jersey image that is somewhat deserved because between having no media to have a 
check on you and a small group of people that kind of decide the direction of the state in terms of party politics, it does lead to a tremendous amount of intrigue that I think a lot of other states probably don't have. And beyond New Jersey, your wheelhouse throughout a lot of your career has been communications, Mm -hmm. political figures, elected officials, corporate entities. What mistakes do you see people, organizations, candidates making in their communications? Is there a tip or two that you could offer from your best practices? Yes, dumb it down, not because people are stupid, but because we as Democrats tend to really over-intellectualize everything. And it's not just this White House, it's every White House on the Democratic side, putting out things like we just passed a X number billion infrastructure plant bill, or we just passed attached large number bill. And nobody ever tells the person sitting in Northampton County, Pennsylvania, in a swing district, what that means for them personally. I'm going to use again Northampton County, Pennsylvania, just because that's a, the swingiest county and the swingiest state in the nation. Tell me how that's going to pave Main Street in Hellertown, Pennsylvania. Tell me how that's going to ease up the traffic jam on Route 78 for people commuting to work in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Tell me how that's going to fix a bridge over the Lehigh River in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania that I worry about collapsing on me every time I drive to work. And I just use that as an example of one way that I think Democrats have a very amorphous way of communicating accomplishments rather than telling people who don't have time to wade through all the minutia and the policy details how it's going to impact them personally. It's an incredibly easy thing to do, and it's an incredibly effective thing to do. And I don't think we as Democrats have done an effective job of communicating it that way to people. Trump has. I mean, Trump was an incredible communicator to his base. He told them exactly what, whether it was true or not, what things meant for them and ways that they were able to understand and ways that were tangible to them and ways that they were really able to, to grasp personally. We really need to do the same. Julie, what was your path to becoming a regular presence on uh, Fox News? Um, very, very weird. Um, I had a very good friend who was and continues to be a pollster down in D.C. He called me up one day in 2004 and said, listen, I, I have a new girlfriend and there's no way in hell I'm getting up tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. to go down to the Fox News studios to do a TV show because I'm not leaving her. <laughs> this is a new relationship. But have you ever done local TV? I said, I have. He said, well, can I give them your name? And I said, sure. In February or March of 2004, um, right when the Bush reelect was heating up, I ended up on Fox, on Fox and Friends on a Sunday morning in place of him. And I guess they liked what they saw. So they kept calling me back, calling me back, calling me back for a very long time. I desperately tried to actually get hired because I was there so much. Could not get my foot in the door. Ultimately, CNBC ended up hiring me completely bizarre because I have zero experience talking about finance. And after about a year, I realized if people were going to listen to me about investment or anything else, I was going to bankrupt everybody. So I probably should do something else. So I called my agent because at that point I already had an agent. And I said, listen, I, I want to go back to Fox. And the reason I want to go back to Fox is twofold. One is it really is the best television from a television perspective that you can have. And I want to be at the number one place because that's the best place to be to learn. And number two is I want to learn from Roger Ailes because he is a genius and I want to learn from him. My agent said and laughed and he kind of said, well, I'm going to tell you something you're not going to like. You are not blonde and you are not conservative. So the odds of you getting hired at Fox News are probably zero or something close to it. And I said, okay, well, I will um, I will try to take care of it myself. And I did. And I kind of talked my way into a meeting with Roger Ailes and he ultimately ended up hiring me. And so I ended up working at Fox for a very long time. And it was a 
interesting time to be there because when I first got to Fox it was 2004. I hadn't been hired yet, but when I first started regularly appearing at Fox, um, it was the second Bush term or about to be the second Bush term. By the time I left, it was six months into Donald Trump's term and the place had changed drastically, not to mention that Roger Ailes was gone. I not only don't regret it, what I learned from Fox was just unbelievable. It really is incredible television. They know how to produce TV that I wish other stations would emulate. And not just from what they say, but actually how they produce it. I loved being, I loved fighting with people. I loved being <laughs> the contrarian. I kind of liken it always to WWF. If you remember the old wrestling shows where everybody kind of knows their role, right? Like the Iron Sheik was the villain and, and I was the villain. I understood that, but it was fun to be on a set when you're doing a show like The Five or a show like Outnumbered, which is five people on, on the set and you're the only liberal and you're arguing not just with one person, you're arguing with everybody. It was interesting. It was intellectually kind of stimulating to be able to, to figure out how to do that. And maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, but I, I really enjoyed it. And it's not, you know, to me, it's kind of boring to sit around in a set and everybody agrees that Donald Trump stinks, right? The anchor agrees. The, one of the guests agrees. The other guest agrees. Everybody agrees. and Everybody kind of just, just talks about it. Much more interesting to me to be able to potentially change the hearts and minds of people. I'm not naive. I don't think I changed anybody's hearts and minds at all, but I was able to say what I wanted to say in a, and kind of in the lion's den. And I really enjoyed it. It was a great time. Until it wasn't, it was a good time. Can you say more about the production values or the savvy at producing and putting on a television show? What makes Fox better than nuts and bolts of the Fox approach than, than their competitors? Look, I think what Fox does is Fox tries to and maybe this is not good for the nation, but it's good television. But what Fox tries to do is Fox tries to really stir up the passions of its viewers, right? And and tries to constantly get them angry about something. The way they do that is not just scaring the bejesus out of their viewers about the other caravans coming across the border or, or people of color looting and, and ransacking and the things that we all know are completely absurd and, and exaggerated. But what Fox does so effectively is it actually creates, sets up sometimes their straw men, actually not sometimes, very often their straw men debates, but nevertheless, they do have debates. I was never, I will say this, nobody ever told me what I could and couldn't say Fox ever. I think a lot of the anchors there have self-censorship because they know what the executives want to hear. But from my perspective and my role there, I didn't really care because I knew that my role there was not to toe the party line. It was quite the opposite. And I think in some ways that gets viewers engaged, right? I mean, they might be rooting against me, but they're rooting for the person I'm debating to beat me. It's not news. It's certainly not news at all. There's nothing news about it. It's it's basically, as I said, a worldwide wrestling federation entertainment thing. But it's also something that I think makes for good television, not good news television, but makes for good television. I want to stress very strongly that it's not good for our body politic. It's not good for where we are as a society. I think it's incredibly divisive. I think it's incredibly misleading. I think it leads people tremendously to create enemies of people who don't share their views in ways that probably had not happened before, before the rise of talk radio, before the rise of Fox News. But nevertheless, in terms of television specifically, I, th I thought at the time it made for good television. And I think I, I was in a very different place at the time. This was before the rise of the Tea Party, it was before the rise of Trump. I don't think I saw the consequences of that back then in ways that I obviously see them now. And I think if hindsight is 2020, I certainly would not feel the same way now. But at the time, I could not have predicted that that's where the, this would lead, that it would lead to 
Trumpism and, and worse as a result of the kind of behavior that, that I engage in and a lot of other people engage in on that network. And to the degree you're able to talk about it, comfortable talking about it, can you talk about your departure from Fox after what was a decade plus? What led you to file suit against Fox News, be part of a suit against Fox News, against Roger Ailes, I believe, directly, and, and how that ultimately played out? Well, this is the part where I would say, here's what I could say about Fox News, and then you'd have a probably a 10-second silence. <laughs> because that would be your answer. Um, I can't say much. I can't say much because I'm bound by a very onerous non-disclosure agreement as a result of my settlement. I will say that the first person to file the lawsuit against Roger Ailes for sexual harassment retaliation was Gretchen Carlson, who was an anchor at Fox and Friends and then became an anchor um, on her own afternoon show. And I was still at Fox when she filed that lawsuit. And I had two thoughts when I heard that she filed it. One was I thought she was going to be absolutely eviscerated. She was taking on the most powerful man in media. She was taking on the most powerful network in the country. She was taking on, in some ways, Rupert Murdoch, the most powerful media executive in the world. So I thought this poor woman is just, she's going to get crucified. My other thought was, okay, so it wasn't just me. And I can't say much beyond that other than to say... I'm positive I'm not alone in having that second thought of the many women who work there. In terms of what specifically happened and how it unraveled and what happened, you know, I can't say much other than I filed a lawsuit. I still had to work through the remainder of my contract and then the contract was not renewed. It's anybody's guess as to why it wasn't renewed. I'll let you draw your own conclusions, but that's why I'm no longer at Fox. And that's why I'm so committed now to working very hard with Gretchen Carlson to eradicate non-disclosure agreements, because I will tell you, it's a very weird thing. We've had movies made about us. We've had articles written about us. Um, there's a movie called Bombshell that came out a few years ago, which I watched, ironically, on a flight to LA, watching somebody portray me, thinking to myself, I can't tell anybody whether this movie is accurate, whether this portrayal of me is accurate. I couldn't speak to the actress who portrayed me to give her any tips about myself or what happened to me. It's a very weird feeling to read stories about what people think or to watch movies or, or just hear opinions about what people think happened to not just to me, but to the women um, at Fox who took on Roger Ailes and not be able to tell them whether they're right or wrong or really own your own story, right? Anybody, you can talk about what you think happened to me. Anybody in the world can talk about what happened to me except me, which is very weird and very odd. We'd started the show by talking about my whole light from the Soviet Union and why people weren't able to really speak freely then. It's very bizarre to more than 40 years later to find yourself in a situation where you also are, are gagged from speaking out. From that perspective, that just shouldn't be. And it shouldn't be because I think this is a system that inherently protects predators at the expense of survivors by allowing them to say what they want to say and do what they want to do. And the people who, who call them out are not able to, to say anything. So it's not so much about Fox News, because I can't talk about that generally. And it's not so much about people like me or Gretchen, who are other people know because they saw us on TV or, you know, I'm going to be OK. Gretchen Carlson's going to be OK. But this happens all the time to people all across the country. And these silencing mechanisms, ironically, people don't realize this affect everybody. A third of the American workplace is bound by NDAs. The people who are most drastically impacted are African-American women making $13 or less an hour. It's not famous people who've been on TV. It's not political consultants who've earned a good living over their, the course of their life. 
It's people who in society are the most disenfranchised to begin with because of their gender, because of their race, because of their income. And on top of that, they can't access their rights at work. That's just not right. And it's something that I am incredibly committed to changing. And it's literally what I'm doing almost full time now to make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else. It was born of my own experience, but it's not really about me anymore. We talked around it. So talk about the role that Lift Our Voices plays in this discussion. Yeah. um, Well, thank you for bringing that up because it's actually, I think, something that people are not quite aware of. So uh, I mentioned Gretchen Carlson. She and I founded a organization about three years ago called Lift Our Voices. And it was, again, born out of our experiences, but not really because of us. Both of us had heard from countless women and men too, but mostly women after we filed our own lawsuits about very similar things that happened to them. And it didn't happen with Roger Ailes or Fox News. It didn't happen with people who were faint. I mean, a lot of them actually did call who there are Weinstein survivors before he got blown up. There are all sorts of people who were kept these NDAs by famous celebrities, but mostly it's women, as I said, who are just regular people working regular jobs, right? Most of these people just wanted to go to work and not be harassed or not be racially discriminated against or discriminated against based on on gender or or sexual orientation or, or age or anything else. And they found that they couldn't, they couldn't just do their jobs because if they went to complain to HR about being sexually harassed or racially discriminated against, they would immediately either be forced into something called arbitration. 84% of all American workers will be by 2024, which means that they couldn't sue in open court. The only reason I was able to sue Roger Ailes in Fox News, and the only reason anybody knows my story, is because they forgot to put an arbitration clause in my contract. If they had put an arbitration clause in my contract like they did for virtually everybody else I worked with, you'd never know my story because I would be sent into forced arbitration. It would be completely secret. The arbitrator would most likely be be chosen from a list of arbitrators who the company had worked for with in the past. It is in the arbitrator's interest very much to side with the company because it's repeat business if they do. And typically the arbitrators are older white men who look nothing like the women or the people of color whose cases they're adjudicating. Only 2% of all arbitration cases result in any kind of financial compensation for the complainant, which just goes to show how it's stacked against people who, who raise these issues. If you have to go through arbitration or you're bound by an NDA, you can't say anything about what happened to you. You can't warn your coworkers that there's a predator in their midst. You can't discuss with your coworkers that something awful is happening to you. Is it happening to them? You can't shout from the rooftops, hey, anybody who's going to work at this company, this person who you're going to work for is a harasser, an assaulter, a a racist. I mean, name it, right? You can't do anything. And what ends up happening, and this is, by the way, this is not just for people who settle lawsuits. I mean, a third of American workers are bound by NDAs, most of them in their first day of employment. And when you leave because you can't take it anymore, or you leave because you don't even sue, you just leave because you say, look, I I just can't continue to work for somebody who's harassing me or, or, or discriminating against me. When you apply for your next job and your prospective employer says, well, wait a second, Zach, why are you not working at this company where you worked for the last 10 years? Your answer has to either be I can't tell you, which of course means that it looks like you did something wrong because you're bound by an NDA. You can't tell them or else you're going to get sued or you have to make something up, which is not a great way to start a career where you're lying. Not only have we driven so many women and people of color from their jobs and their chosen careers because of these silencing mechanisms, we've actually driven them out of the workforce because you can't get another job after that. That's really, really, really problematic, especially as we talk about wanting to promote women, people of color, especially in this day and age, after 
Me Too and, and Black Lives Matter. And so many companies now have all these great like ESG and DEI organizations where they talk constantly about all their great things they're doing for their employees of color or the, or the women who work for them. But the reality is, if you're silencing your employees, they can't say whether you're actually doing great things for them. You can't. You can't say a word. And that's really brutal. When I tell you that we hear from people, multiple people every single day from every walk of life, whether you work for some major bank in New York or you work for some big box store as a cashier in Arkansas, we hear from people across the spectrum who constantly say something really brutal and awful is happening to me at work. I can't say anything because I have this NDA and I work for a corporation and I'm going to be sued into oblivion if I say anything, or at least I'm going to be threatened to be sued into oblivion if I say anything. And I leave. I spoke to a woman who was bound by an NDA with Harvey Weinstein. She was one of the first women who came forward about Harvey Weinstein. Uh, her name is Zelda Perkins. And, and there's going to be a movie out called, if you remember the Jody Cantor, Megan Tui, New York Times book, she said um, Zelda is a big character in this movie. She confronted Harvey Weinstein. This is just one example. Confronted Harvey Weinstein back in the 90s about sexually assaulting her co-worker. She was 24 when she confronted him. The co-worker was 22. He slapped her with an NDA. She didn't know what she was signing. That was it. She was driven out of the industry. She went to South America, I think, to train horses because she really didn't know what to do. Both she and the other woman were suicidal. I mean, think about how many of us put every ounce of our energy into our careers. First, you're told you have to do really well in school. Then you're told you have to work really hard to get into the college you want to get into. Then you're told to work really hard in college so you can go to graduate school or get the job that you want. And then you finally get the job that you want and you finally work your way up to where you want to be in that job or you're just starting out on the job either way. And then it's all taken away from you, not because of anything you did, but because somebody harassed you or somebody did something awful to you. And you can't say anything to anybody, to your mom, to your dad, to your husband, to your kids, to your best friend, to your, a lot of times to your therapist, a lot of times to your priest or your rabbi. It's no surprise that so many people that we speak to say they were actually suicidal because their entire identity was about their jobs and about their careers. They've been told from day one, they had to work hard to get somewhere. They finally got there and their careers are destroyed. This is not the America we should be living in. Unfortunately, not enough people focused on these issues until our stories of Fox became public. And then Gretchen and I just said, what the hell? Nobody else is kind of focused on this. So we will be. And we have been. And we've been pretty successful in, in passing legislation with this president to get it done and continue to get it done. And we'll continue to get it done until we eradicate these silencing mechanisms and people are actually able to go to work and, and not worry about it. Just go to work and do your job without having to worry about being harassed or discriminated against and not be able to say anything or call out their predator. And earlier you mentioned at an earlier time in your career, you were often asked for advice by young women just starting out in politics. In retrospect, were unhappy with some of the advice you gave. What advice do you find yourself giving young people now? What does that advice look like today? Well, it's interesting. I just taught a class at Eagleton at Rutgers University to a bunch of young students. They were like maybe 19 or 20. And they asked me that exact question. And I said, it's very hard. The advice I used to give, if somebody's harassing you or making you feel uncomfortable or anything else, just keep your head down. Don't say anything. 
people don't like people who complain in politics, just, just do your job, but eventually the cream will rise to the top. That's not true. I mean, I wish it were true. It's not true. I'm also very cognizant of the fact that I had gotten to a very good point in my career before I, I ever spoke up. I wasn't just starting out. It's a lot harder when you're first starting out to be able to speak up because not everybody's going to listen to you when you're when you're first starting out. And that is if you can speak up. I mean, so many times people can't speak up because they do have these silencing mechanisms, whether it's an arbitration clause or NDA. It's really a personal decision because on the one hand, if you speak up, you might lose your job. You might lose your career. I mean, it happens over and over again. If you don't speak up, you might lose it anyway because you're at the mercy of the person who's harassing you or doing something awful to you. They may not want you around. And if you don't say anything, the behavior won't change and there'll be a, a constant stream of other people. I mean, the one constant that when I've spoken to people who've had NDAs that they've said to me is the guilt that they felt knowing that they couldn't warn other people coming into that situation about it because they were worried about being sued. The horrible sense of betrayal of themselves, betrayal of these other younger people that they felt not being able to warn anybody about this toxic experience is awful. The best piece of advice I can give is try to get as many people to go in with you together. It's harder to do anything to a group of people than it is to one person. I will say, especially with respect to campaigns, we talk a lot about campaigns organizing and unionizing and what campaigns typically don't have because they're effectively pop-up shops, right? Like they start they go on for a period of time, then they leave. There is no HR component. And not that HR is your friend in a corporate setting because they're not. But when you go complain, if there is going to be any kind of investigation on a campaign, and there typically will not be, but if there is, it's going to be by the campaign attorney who's not trained to do this. It's going to be by somebody being paid by the candidate, right? So they know who their client is. You're not their client. They are going to most likely come to the conclusion that the client wants them to come to. And sometimes that is a conclusion that is not great for you. There needs to really be a reckoning within the political system. There needs to be a reckoning all across the country to begin with with this. But specifically, if we're talking about political campaigns, there needs to be a reckoning much more holistically, not just with individual campaigns, but much more holistically about how we handle these kinds of situations. Because anybody who's worked on campaigns knows lots of young people, very long hours, no holds barred, low pay, huge power dynamics, because it's almost like an army where you have the campaign manager or whoever else who's really in charge and everybody kind of has to answer to him or her. Not much room for avoiding bad situations and bad situations want to find you. That's something that I think we as a party on the Democratic side, I certainly would urge the Republicans to do the same, need to have much more holistically. And I just, it's not happening and it really should be. If I'm a candidate, if I'm a campaign manager, thinking about these issues of NDAs and confidentiality, are there ways to have confidence that a 400-page research document on myself will be kept confidential after the fact or sensitive polling or information about my list of donors? Are there things, practices that can be done to protect those elements of the campaign world that are not getting anywhere near tying people's hands as it as it relates to sure. by God toxic elements and harassment and all of that. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's a law firm called Perkins Cooey that does a lot of these kinds of documents for Democratic campaigns. I'm sure there's a Republican equivalent. I've signed contracts that the same firm has done for different clients, right? One has been specifically talking about keeping proprietary information such as 
polling information. I mean, it's very clear about what kind of proprietary information you need to keep. And that contract is not hard to write. And then I've also signed contracts on, on a campaign where nothing that I witnessed, saw, experienced, breathed on this campaign could ever be public. And that includes the worst kind of behavior. So there are any good lawyer is able to write the kind of the kind of campaign document that they want or the kind of contract that they want to write, right? Sometimes the same lawyer writes two different kinds of documents. It really depends on what the candidate wants. There are plenty of templates to protect proprietary information that should be protected. I mean, of course, all of that should be proprietary and it should survive the campaign for obvious reasons. That should never be disclosed. And I think anybody worth their salt who's in the room getting that kind of information is experienced enough not to disclose it anyway, but of course, you should be able to have a contract to force them not to disclose that. But this goes much further than that. This goes towards not being able to disclose harassment, discrimination, misogyny, other toxic behavior. I mean, that just should not exist on any kind of campaign. And I say specifically as a Democrat who loves the fact that the Democratic National Committee in their last policy platform said they were going to get rid of forced arbitration, said they were going to get rid of NDAs. The president did sign legislation that we pushed through, lift our voices to eradicate forced arbitration clauses for sexual harassment and assault. He probably will sign legislation, I would hope. Once it passes to eradicate um, NDAs for sexual harassment and assault. But if that's what's in our party platform as Democrats, we should live that on our campaigns. We should live that in our congressional offices as well. And the best way to look at it is if I know the secret formula to Coca-Cola, I shouldn't walk it across the street to Pepsi. Coca-Cola should be able to sign me to any kind of NDA it wants to pre prevent me from, from giving the secret formula of Coca-Cola to Pepsi. But if I'm being harassed by the chief executive of Coca-Cola, that I should be able to talk about. And it's the same thing here. The secret formula of Coca-Cola is the polling data, the strategy, it's the GOTV targets, it's all of the stuff that we've talked about. But it's not bad behavior being covered up to protect either the candidate or the candidate's inner circle at the expense of people who work on his campaign or, or in his congressional office or, or his other offices. I mean, it's just, that's the difference and that really something that any lawyer can draft up to reflect. Thank you for walking me through that. Well, let's end on a recommendation. What is something, a TV show, a book, a movie, a recipe, a product, something you've gotten into recently that you'd recommend others give a try? Oh my God. I've been cooking nonstop through COVID. I think it's like the one thing you have control over, right? <laughs> you just follow recipes. So you shouldn't ask me because I think I gained about 20 pounds during COVID on the Food Network app. I am into the game, the new Game of Thrones. Have you watched it? I'm getting into that. I, I don't know if it's as good as the original, but it's getting there. So I've been very much into that lately. Well, a truly unique story. No one else I know of in politics has a story like you, Julie Roginski. Uh, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.